So Lord knows I've been doing nothing but painting a target on my face for the last several episodes, so let's do it again. This is often considered one of the most beloved and awesome episodes in all of Star Trek. In fact, I have actually, in multiple of my little things I read for going into these ruminations, they have said that the bridge scene, you know the one, is the best scene in all of TNG. I like this episode. I think its emotional core is actually fantastic. But I have to point out that this is actually a pretty flawed episode. Now, I thought about... This is actually my second take. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, Laura, you usually don't do second takes. Yeah, the, the mowing guys came right by and it's like... Right? I just... I lost my concentration. I just hit the rest stop button. But I want to say, in my first take, I started going down the list because I wrote down a lot of the flaws with the episode. And most of them are with the Dyson shell, or sphere, excuse me. Almost all of the flaws have to do with the nature of how the damned thing is presented. Like the fact that they can't detect this thing, like the fact that it's apparently nearby a retirement colony and yet nobody found it for 80 years. Um, like the fact that its size is actually nonsensical. Funny fact, for those of you not aware, when writing Star Trek scripts, if the actual writers doing the teleplay, or excuse me, the step before the teleplay, forgive me, don't actually know a figure, they'll just write in a, a specific notation. Sometimes they'll write tech for Technobabble. Sometimes they'll write, uh, I forget the actual notation, but it's like, we need something here. And then the people whose job it is to go over those and rewrite those and recheck those and edit those scripts will go ahead and say, ah, well, this is such and such. So the writer had no idea the size of this thing. So then they wrote, so they would write in, you know, show the, you know, this thing is blank lard, right? And then they were, the thing is, they wrote in the number like, oh my God, that's incredibly huge. I had no idea. Now I want you to keep that in mind because it makes sense when you realize that later on there's a big crisis moment where the Enterprise is sucked in and then is drifting towards the star from a distance of roughly the Earth's orbit around the sun, a.k.a. a long frickin' way, or roughly nine light minutes. Now, that is an inordinately huge distance when you're drifting along at less than impulse speeds. And that should, that should take in the realm of weeks before they actually reach that star. But no, they reach there in one scene cut. And I, I actually forgot how quick that was. It's like, oh my god, we're still drifting. Cut to Scotty and LaForge. Cut back. We're three minutes from hitting the star. What? But this makes sense if you presume that the writer of the episode, who wrote all those scenes without knowing the figures, had no actual idea of just how gargantuan this thing is. In short, it makes sense, and it's explained, why this is nonsensical. And... That little things like that are basically all over the place. I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to go over all of them. I changed my mind. I changed my mind. But I do want to mention two things. Because these are two of the bigger ones. First of all, they cannot show the proper scale of this thing. It's, it's hard to visually comprehend the size of something that is a sphere the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. That is large on a scale that human brains don't have a good capacity to comprehend. But I do want to give them credit for actually bothering to try to show that this is larger than your typical thing of the week. First of all, they did good work with the miniature that they had actually developed. Really big slab of a miniature. They actually built two of these. And they do this thing where you could see it, and it just kind of goes off into the distance until you just see black. Like you just can't see the curvature of it anymore. So that gets across the scale pretty well. They also do a thing 
or the initial shot, the Enterprise, you, usually when they do the initial establishing shot, the Enterprise goes forward. It's about a two or three to four second thing. Here they do it for a full 12 seconds of the Enterprise just getting smaller and smaller and smaller against it. In short, the technology of 1992 wasn't really there to show off the scale of this thing properly. But they do what they can with what they have to show it off. And I do want to give credit where credit is due. The other thing, though... <laughs> There's this bit where Scotty comes out, and he's like, oh, I bet James Kirk himself, actually says Jim Kirk, Jim Kirk himself got Enterprise out of mothballs to come look for me. The Generation script was actually already being worked on, although only vaguely at this point in time. So they had a few very vague outline ideas of what was going to happen, including the, spoilers, death of James Kirk. Now, the catch here is that was the kind of thing that was only, be, was only known to a few people basically, and certainly not to the people who are writing this episode. In short, this is a pretty classic example of not having a mainliner, to, to put it in simplistic terms. There was no one coordinating the story across the multiple mediums, so the two stories kind of stumble over each other. Now we, then we can excuse it away. Maybe he was disoriented, or maybe he thought Kirk survived. In fact, several of the novels have gone way out of their way to explain multiple ways to, to try and explain away this line about uh, Scotty, who it's worth noting, in actual continuity, was present when Kirk died. And in fact, as if you think about it for a second, was actually still alive when he died the second time. But it does... It's something I'm willing to skip over, but something I do want to acknowledge. Because all of those little things are what dragged this episode down for me. I know, I know, you're going to yell at me, especially if you're named Huthor, and you're going to say, look, Laura, you're missing the point. I guess I can't argue against that. All I can say is that I disagree. And I want to explain my point on this very briefly, and then I'll delve into the episode proper. Because I bring up a lot of little continuity errors and, and nonsensical points in the story. And obviously I do that partially because it's my job. But I've been doing this since before I started recording these, before I ever even thought about a YouTube channel. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Because that's just kind of the way my mind works. I asked a couple people, including a friend of mine, you know, what is it that you really get out of fiction? And one of the more common responses was how it makes me feel, you know, how it makes them feel. And I'm like, okay, that makes perfect sense. You know, and, and one of the people, I'm not going to name names at this point. If you're watching this, though, you know who you are. One of those people was like, yeah, no, it, it makes me feel the core intent, the core heart of the work is what really matters to me, not the, not the nitty-gritty details or the specifics. I don't care about that. What I care about is the core feeling that, I, that it evokes within me. And I can understand that because I'm actually the same way, just kind of inverse. See, for me, if I see those little flaws that I've been seeing since I was a kid, if I see those little mistakes or screw-ups, that prevents me from feeling, if that makes any kind of sense. It makes it difficult for me to care. It makes it difficult for me to get immersed or to in, get invested in a fictional work. This is kind of a problem with video games, too, although at least with video games, if it has great gameplay, I can kind of, you know, be like, well, whatever, you know, it's Mega Man, right? But with a story, a non-interactive story, like a TV show or a movie, when I see these flaws, it just kind of, I feel like someone is physically pushing me away from the episode to the point where it's difficult, where I have to now overcome that in order to feel anything. Now, I stand by Cloud Effect very strongly. It's one of the most common uh, loriums that happen when it happens when it comes to Star Trek. 
But cloud effect, the reason I, I dubbed it that, the reason I've had that terminology for so long is because I always feel with, with episodes like this one that I have to, I'd have to work at it. I have to drag myself over the hill of all these little issues and plot problems that just kind of make me go, huh? And I'm like, no, 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 just, just try to ignore it. Just try to ignore it. Does that make any sense? I suppose I'm just opening myself up for more criticism, but that's okay. I can take it. I just wanted to try and explain my mentality on that. So, speaking of the heart of the episode, Scotty. Obviously, 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 James Doohan has, has been gone for a very long time at this point. Um, we, we lost him quite a while ago, and that sucks. As, as I've said many times, no matter what else you add to it, death sucks. And it, I'll, I'll be completely blunt, it made me sad watching this episode, especially right at the beginning. They have the whole, um, you know, the old Enterprise transport effect, even though it makes no sense. And Scotty appears, and, you know, Duan's there, and it's just, oh, that just kind of hit, you know. So Scotty realizes very quickly that he is in the future in some extent or another. Of course he does, he's not an idiot. The only thing that doesn't really line up is he doesn't understand how long. He figures it's probably been months, maybe in the year range, maybe two. Then he sees the Klingon, and he's like, okay. And a Klingon's a lieutenant. By the way, very fun little fact. All of the bridge crew embrace Scotty in some manner or another when saying goodbye to him, except Worf, where they just kind of look at each other and are like, eh. That was actually a nice touch, and I am amazed they managed to get that in there. Anywho. So... Scotty then, of course, has a great deal of fascination with the tech of the future. And what I find interesting about this is I could see both perspectives very well here. First, we have Scotty, someone who absolutely loves his engineering. He, he is an engineer at heart, and he is the kind of person who... Let me rewind this for a second. Can you name something that you really love? And it has to be a thing, a concept, a hobby. Can't be a person, right? <laughs> you cannot love people. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, though, imagine something that you absolutely adore. Now imagine that it's 75 years later, and that thing you adore is still there. And now you've put yourself in the position of Scotty. It's like, oh my god, this is so amazing, and look what they've done with this, and oh, they did this, that makes so much sense. Oh, I guess I guess they solved the such-and-such problems with the what's-your-fig, right? I mean, can't you just imagine the enthusiasm that would be burning in his veins and just itching to, to dig into this new society and trying to figure out where they've done with it and, and what they've done with it, where they've gone with it and what they've done with it. Now, picture LaForge's mentality. Same general mentality. There's something you love, right? Some concept, some ideology, some hobby, you know, model airplanes. I don't know. And you have been in love with this for a long time, and all of a sudden, someone, a legend in that field, is all of a sudden there and present for you to talk with. Someone who's been around in, in the old... And you kind of get the mentality, right? Now, Le, now you see LaForge's enthusiasm and how much... He is so excited to be around and, and interact with Scotty. Now, so I, I love both perspectives. And I love the way they are portrayed. And, of course, everyone is very nice and polite and, frankly, embracing of Scotty. Especially Picard. Picard, maybe this is just because it's Stuart. 
and Stewart was closer in age to doing than just about anyone else in the cast. But Picard just absolutely nails the exact right amount of respect without entering into condescension around Scotty. It's a nice touch. Um, but I've talked before about the different approaches that each of the engineers has across Star Trek. Some of them are pretty similar to each other, but ultimately their different variances are slices of the same concept. So Scotty, he's the what I like to call the improvisational engineer. He's the guy who's making it up on the fly with nothing. He's the one taking stone knives and bearskins and trying to rope together a working engine. LaForge, I've always thought, is far more of the design engineer, the kind of person who could work in a lab and can come up with ideas and concepts and then put them into practice. In short, he's far more of a design engineer than a practical engineer. Now, that's not to say that LaForge doesn't have a great deal of capacity with practical engineering. It's just that he kind of leans more in the other direction. Now, wh now I'm, bring I'm not just bringing this up to give own my own theories on the matter. I've been saying all this stuff for years. As I was looking into this, it turns out Moore and Schenker both had a lengthy discussion about the difference in approach between Scotty's engineering and LaForge's engineering. And this is, of course, before O'Brien entered the mix, and then Balana, and then Tucker. And I forget who the engineer is on Discovery. But anyways, point being, apparently they both had lengthy discussions about the nature of this, and they actually disagreed on this point. But... The idea was Scotty was an engineer who was most at home in engineering. LaForge is an engineer who was most at home relaxing on a beach or whatever. In short, engineering was not simply a hobby for Scotty. It was his life, to put it into simplistic terms. Whereas for LaForge, it's his career. And you can kind of see how the gradient there is different. Uh, there was a there was a specific bit. Uh, I guess I'll just pull it up. It was something about you know LaForge would relax with some books, whereas Scotty would relax with some technical manuals. Here we go. Let me see if I can find it here. Jordy is the kind of guy. This is Naren Shankar. Shankar, excuse me. Jordy is the kind of guy who, when he wants to relax, he might go to the beach or play guitar music or hang out. Scotty's the kind of guy who will go into his room and read technical manuals. An engineer through and through, and he likes to break rules and do things in an unorthodox manner. He likes to tinker, and Jordy is not that way. There you go. There's their thoughts. I'm just actually really amused that the writers put similar thought into the variance of approach from the engineers that we fans have been doing for so many years. Anyways. Now, this is when the episode... Okay, so I've already mentioned how the, the nitpicking, the... the continuity, the construction of the script and the narrative tends to lose me when it comes to non-interactive fiction. Now I'm going to explain how even the heart of this episode kind of falters. It, at the beginning. Be well, actually, not even at the beginning. It's like in the second act. Because the beginning is like, yes! And the second act is like, Ugh! and then the rest of it's awesome, is pretty much my approach here. Because there's a brief section, and it is brief, but it irritates me every time I watch it. And this time was no exception. It's the, you're too old, wah-wah section. I don't know what else to call it. There's the ensign who treats doing, excuse me, who treats Scotty as if he's like just a waste of his time in an extremely rude manner, which is is actually, to be perfectly blunt, a little bit out of line. Like, I, I am a legit astonished that they assigned random ensign number 35 to this and that he was this rude to someone like Scotty. 
even if Scotty was not a legend among Starfleet, he is functionally a VIP, a, 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 a dignitary of some kind, right? I want you to imagine if the royal noble of House Blah 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 was visiting and this ensign happened to give him his quarters and was this rude to him. Think about that for a second. So that doesn't fit for me. <clears throat> And I feel like it's being done just to emphasize the point. It, basically, to shortcut. It's being done because plot, in short. They want to get to the point where Scotty feels useless. And I feel like they try to shortcut it too much, and I feel like it's to this episode's detriment. Because the next thing that happens is Scotty just goes into engineering and says, all right, I'm here to help. And LaForge is like, okay. No, that's not what LaForge does. We've been watching LaForge for the better part of five years, or five-plus years now. And Jordy is a very easygoing, friendly guy who is very easy to get along with and tends to be friendly with just about everyone. Naturally, when Scotty shows up, he is irritable. And then, after a mere three incidents, he actually raises his voice and gets to the point of almost yelling at Scotty. Now, I get the point. They wanted there to be this arc between them being antagonistic towards them being friendly. I don't buy it. It's a little bit too artificial, and a little bit too fake, and a little bit too forced. And when I say those three incidents, I want to make this clear. So first, Scotty mentions something, and LaForge is like, no, we do this now. And he already sounds irritable. First incident. In the second incident, he has completely lost all patience, it's, which is the dilithium crystal thing. And LaForge is like, this is ridiculous. And he's just got that kind of cold, go-away tone to him. And then the third incident is when Scotty simply says, oh my god, you, you tell him the actual time it takes. And that's when LaForge officially loses his cool in every sense of the word and almost yells at him. LaForge. I really don't buy that whole scene. It's all just kind of awkward and forced. And if I'm being honest, back in the V... This was part of the VHS collection, by the way. But even back when I was rewatching this, I just skipped these scenes. Now, that being said, there is a scene that kind of helps add to that a little bit. And it was cut. It was a deleted scene. It was when uh, Scotty goes back to his room and he's obviously very upset. And, and of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? And Troy comes in to check on him. Now, it turns out Troy was sent there by Jordy because Jordy was worried about him. Because, of course, he would be worried about him. So that actually makes a little, at least a little bit of sense. Like, maybe Jordy lost his cool. It's like, okay, I'm sorry, you know. Instead, we just cut straight to the 10 forward scene, which he goes to because, you know, he was upset that Jordy thinks there's something wrong with me, you know. Now, the good news is, from this point on, the episode actually manages to, to be good, at least at its core heart. I mean, obviously, they screw up a lot of things like beaming through the shields, or the fact that the Enterprise manages to take only like two minutes to get back from the star to the outer edge, even though they were hanging out in literal the dangerous fear. Like, why didn't they just leave earlier? At the very least, then they would have been, you know, not on the surface of a star that's going nuclear, nuclear or whatever. I'm also going to ignore the fact that, you know, well, whatever, you get the point. The whole 90 bajillion, like 90 million clicks. I actually wrote it down. They were 90 million kilometers from the star, and they traversed that in a couple of minutes. Moving over all of that, the rest of the episode is actually quite good, in my opinion, because this is when the episode finally gets to the heart of the matter, really. Speaking personally, I... 
let me rewind a second. First, we have a bit with Data and Scotty, which is good. Um, ignoring the obvious it's green reference, which everyone knows about, uh, there's a nice little moment where you know, he, he serves the drink and Scotty's just kind of like, oh my god. And he's gotten just a little bit drunk, just, just pleasantly drunk. Uh, buzzed, I think is the term for that. And he goes to the computer and is like, show me my ship. There have been five ships with the name Enterprise. This is another example of continuity drift, but I actually am rather amused how many times across how many shows and movies people just kind of forget to mention the original Enterprise at all. I guess nobody really cares about Archer. Anyways. <clears throat> I know, there's a really, really stupid in-universe explanation for it. I don't care. It's it, We know why it happened. It's because Enterprise hadn't been invented yet. As of this point in history, the original Enterprise was the 1701 blank. The one in the original series. They hadn't yet invented the idea that there was an Enterprise before that yet. Anyways. So, he goes in and we see the bridge. Now, I'd like to take a moment and just praise this scene. I know I mentioned earlier that I, I you know, kind of disparagingly said, oh, this is the best scene in, in TNG. I don't think it's the best scene in TNG. It's still a very good scene. See, what happened here, and I have to talk about this because they put so much effort into it. What happened is building a set, if you're not familiar with this, is actually pretty expensive. And, well, thankfully, you remember all that stuff I mentioned back in the end of Season 5 about how they were Trek was on a high, and so budget wasn't a huge concern. And that's important to note because a lot of the episodes in Season 6 were very expensive. This one's no exception. Obviously, you have James Doohan, who is an expensive guest star, but you've also got the models they had to build for the Dyson Sphere and the special effects for the interior and the special effects for the exterior and the set of the Denolan and just whole lots of stuff they had to do. And then they wanted to do the set of the original Enterprise and recreate the thing. And that is hideously expensive on an already expensive show. And they were shut down on it. But then they, a lot of people, including Moore, who was really pushing this, for those of you not aware, Ronald D. Moore is a big fan of the original series, uh, they were all pushing this and saying, okay, how do we make this actually work? And they came up with the idea, and you, if you rewatch it, you can see it. See, what they did is they got, they got some footage of the bridge, which they imposed on a blue screen for any of the wide shots. And then they made a, an actually very small slice of the bridge, like just this one little corner of it, the spot where his station was, where Scotty's station was over on the, I guess that would have been the lower left section of the bridge overall. Uh, you know, the port aft. And they actually physically built just that slice of it. Even that was actually pretty tricky. But as it happens, one of the things that they decided to do was to allow a little more leeway than they normally would for this kind of a thing. So a lot of people, and unfortunately I don't have a list because all, all we know is it was a lot of people, literally came in after hours on their own volition without pay to make this happen, to build this set, and to get this set up. And I wrote down this guy's name, uh, Steve Horch, which I'm probably mispronouncing, is a gentleman who had made replicas of several things for conventions and the like. And he had a replica of the captain's chair, the helm, and the little, uh, the, the console right in front of that. And I forget if Michael Okuda or he reached out to each other, but one of them reached out to the other. And long story short, Mr. Horch actually brought in his replicas, which are the ones we see in this episode. And they actually filmed that and just... It's actually a unique confluence of things. And a, like I said, a lot of effort and a lot of work were done just to make that shot happen. And I do think it was worth it. 
Ignoring the obvious nostalgic value, we get what is probably the best scene in the episode from it. Scotty goes in, and he's morose. You know, here's to you, lads. And then Picard comes in. Picard has been around long enough to wear the old uniform, to, to put it into such terminology. He is someone who actually was captain of an older class of ship. And remember, Picard is like 30 years into his career at this point. So he understands that idea of that first love, the first ship you have. It's, it's a great scene. It's a very powerful scene. It's someone who has had a very long and very distinguished career who is facing the unpleasant reality that he's simply not useful anymore. And this is why I mentioned that purpose thing earlier. I don't know how many people think this way, because obviously everyone thinks differently. But for me... If I ever reach a point in my life where I am completely useless, and I mean, I'm already like one step away from that because I'm not particularly purposeful right now in my life, but if I ever got to that point where I couldn't do anything anymore, where the one thing that I wanted to do was to be helpful and to be useful and I couldn't, I don't know if I could take that. I define so much of my life about being useful to others, about being helpful. And that's kind of what we see with Scotty. Because Scotty is just such a man of action, of doing. It's, I mean, you can say whatever you want about the whole retirement being put off to pasture old person thing. But really, this episode was Scotty just trying to get right back into the swing of things because he feels like he's been given a second chance. He was, he had consigned himself to retirement. But wait, now he's here. Now he can do stuff again. But no, he can't. It's a, it's a hope spot. He feels like maybe he could be useful again, and it's snatched away from him. And there's just this melancholy that clings to him. They mention <laughs> they mention their first love, the, the the original Enterprise for Scotty, the Stargazer for Picard. I've I've never actually felt that way personally. Although I suppose that gets interesting in how you define your first love. In case you know which which is the first woman I ever loved. I'm not sure which that would be. That's actually an interesting thought. I've never actually felt that way personally. But I still get it because I understand the feeling of the first one you really get into. Let me explain that in a different way. Let me use video games as an example. I played Final Fantasy One first. It was my first Final Fantasy game. I don't have a lot of nostalgia for FF1, and I don't remember it all that fondly, and it hasn't aged all that well in my opinion. So my first one, my first FF in this case, doesn't really mean much to me. But I do remember the first FF I fell in love with. That would be FF4. And I remember exactly how that felt to me. And that one still has a special place in my heart. So even though I don't get the first thing, I get the first one you really connect with thing. And that, I think, is really the point that both Picard and Scotty are going towards. Really, I mean that sincerely, not just because of my own perspective. Because as Scotty points out, the Enterprise wasn't his first ship. He's been on tons of ships. But that ship was his home. That was the ship he spent so much time and effort and work on. You, you know, and of course Picard was captain of the Stargazer for, I forget how long, quite a while. So again, the first ship he really invested himself in. In fact, if I'm not mistaken... I feel like I looked this up. I'm pretty sure Picard was captain of the Stargazer for longer than he was captain of the Enterprise D because of the events of Generations. Either way, it's a very powerful scene and a very emotional scene. Apparently a lot of people really choked up just filming the scene. 
So this brings us to an interesting thing. I've already complained about the nitpicking stuff, so let's just skip over that. But we've got a dilemma of the week. And remember how I mentioned they're trying to get away from a blank of the week format? I'm willing to give it them this, this one exception. And the reason why is because there has to be a problem to be fixed, to be solved. Because that way Scotty can be helpful again. Because that's the point. In this case, it's not about the Dyson shell or the... You know, the, the, the stuff that's going on with, with the beam or the star going... No, no, no. What this is about is the Enterprise is in danger and Scotty can help. I do think that if it had been a better constructive narrative, it would have worked a lot better for me. And instead, it just feels nonsensical. Like, it almost feels condescending. Yeah, we'll just hang out in danger. No, help. Help us, Scotty. Oh, he's there. Okay, now we can now we can go. Let's go. Like, I never felt for a second any of the danger of the scene that probably should have been there. But at least Scotty can show that he does still have his chops. Now, I want to bring that point up, too, for a second. Some people have argued, and in fact, it's mentioned in the episode, that he's 75 years out of date, and therefore he is out of date. I don't fully agree with that. Obviously, the tech moves forward. That's just life. I mean, we, we discussed earlier the how the tech has moved forward. So now, if you wanted to do a Dyson Shell episode now in Star Trek, we now have the tech and the, the industry and the money to actually properly show the damn thing, whereas they didn't really back in the day. So tech moves forward, but the ideas, well, that's a different matter. I'm going to use video game design as my parallel here because it's something I've studied for most of my life. Obviously, there's certain things we can do now with video games that we couldn't 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But that doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as good design when it comes to older games. I personally feel that, to completely ejecting nostalgia, one of the reasons so many people tend to prefer certain older games is because of the good design decisions that went into them. Because they were good games. Not because they were impressive, or not because they really used the technology well, or not because the graphics were amazing, or not because the controls were amazing, but because the core design elements were good. Now, bring this around, this is what I feel with Scotty, and I think this is what the episode does do a good job of showing. That even though the tech has moved beyond him, his core ideas, his design, still is still valid, still works, and is still just as useful. If you were to pluck someone from the NES era, who was a good designer, and plop them down right now, and get them in charge of building a video game, there'd be a lot of awkwardness and a weirdness, because they just don't know the tech. But because they're a good designer, they would still be valuable, possibly invaluable, to the production of that game. And that's how I feel with Scotty. Because the core element there, the heart of what he really is, even though I'm pointing at my head, your heart's in your head, I don't know if you knew this, the core element of what Scotty is is still valid, useful, and good, even 75 years later. So this leads to the denouement. And Scotty gives an interesting speech to LaForge. He says, enjoy these times. They'll never come again. With the advantage of hindsight... That, that scene hit like a truck. Especially now that Star Trek has moved past TNG pretty much entirely. Although, of course, we've got the Picard show, so yay. It just occurred to me, by the time this episode goes live, maybe the Picard show will have actually started going live. I am, of course, recording these well in advance, so it has not yet. And they send him off on the shuttlecraft. Funny fact, one final little anecdote here. They actually had multiple ending ideas, and they just couldn't decide what they wanted to do with it. And I can kind of see that, because 
they wanted to have a send-off for Scotty, but they didn't want to have it be conclusive, like he's he's done and he's never being seen again. But they also didn't really know how to do that. They can't give him a new ship, and they can't have him just be in the engineering room for no reason, and they can't have him just retire, so what the heck do they do with him? So they give him a shuttlecraft. Okay. I mean, space is dangerous, right? <laughs> Would you want to put someone that venerated and that awesome on just a shuttlecraft? Think about how many things could go wrong there. How many times do they crash a shuttle in TNG and Voyager? Whatever, whatever. It is a nice send-off, even though it makes no sense. Which is just this episode in a nutshell, isn't it? I look forward to seeing your guys' comments on this one. <laughs> I'll see you next time.